Working in campaigns isn't glamorous or easy. It can be advocacy, direct action, electoral campaigns, and really any effort that takes a group of people to collectively work in sync towards a goal. It takes a lot of us. First, every campaign has a need for alignment, for all of us to know what will be accomplished if we are successful. It could be to elect someone, to pass or reject a policy, to create new language and awareness. Whatever the effort, there has to be some level of agreement to the mission, even if we recognize that our strategies might differ. Also in campaigns, especially those working with large groups of people, the creation of a culture of collective action takes a great deal of communication, transparency, and consistency. Even the most experienced campaigners have to constantly check if the assumptions of yesterday are still true today. From the data we analyze, to the well-being of our colleagues, everything is in constant flux. 2020 is a very particular year, of course. There are countless of unpredictable circumstances happening every day. A pandemic that has impacted us in painful ways. On top of that, the array of almost daily unprecedented news and shocking realizations, the naming and grieving of racial injustice, 2020 will forever be a turning point on the way we manage campaigns, the way we engage communities, and possibly the way we see politics. This year has been humbling, frustrating, and definitely a learning experience. In today's episode, we will discuss campaigning in 2020. What's different, what's easier, what's harder, and what we should hopefully take away from it. As I've mentioned before, Iconico is a consulting team that works in building progressive advocacy and electoral capacity. And this year, we were lucky to partner with Arizona Ready, an effort to build volunteer and staff capacity in Arizona in preparation for the general election. Arizona Ready was started in early 2020, and we were getting ready to launch right when COVID was arriving in the United States. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China. Arizona Ready's plan was to open offices all across the state, volunteer homes where people could start getting trained and building community to get ready for the elections, a way to start early while the Democratic primary was still developing. Here is what we know right now. The mayor here in New York City is warning that a shelter-in-place order could take hold in the next day or two. But COVID-19 turned the world upside down. It changed our society forever. Therefore, the way we do our work. At Arizona already, we had to stay laser-focused on the mission of recruiting staff to organize volunteers. But it was going to be different. Our almost 50 organizers had to create community online now, at a time when everybody was startled in pain, trying to figure things out. We made so many mistakes, but we also learned a lot. And that is what today's conversation is about. Iconico Exchange is an effort to discuss how changemakers approach their work. Iconico Exchange. We talk about campaigns, places of tension, and joy in our movements, and get inspired by organizers and activists all around the world. Iconico Exchange. Welcome to the last episode of Season 1. We're grateful for your support, your feedback, but more importantly, for your time. We'll be back in early 2021 with a new season and hopefully a new output on how we see our future. We're already working on Season 2 and I can tell you it's going to be powerful. With elections around the corner, we wanted to document this moment from another perspective. Outside of the political, 
focused on the work of managing a campaign, the good and the ugly. We'll hear from two people I admire and I have learned so much from this year. Carla Chavarria is a designer, entrepreneur, and overall badass. She's the founder of a marketing and design firm called Ocho Agency and served as Arizona Ready's digital director. This is how she described what she does. I think if like, I, you know, you ask my family members what I did, they're like, she just sits at her computer all day <laughs> and like checks on Facebook and Instagram. Um, one time someone said, someone told me that I did Zoom things. They're like, she just does things on Zoom. She's like the Zoom master. I was like, I, I know very little. I know how to log in and log out of Zoom. I like to say that I like to come up with uh, pretty designs and pretty concepts. Our second guest is Alex Steele, a veteran in electoral campaigns who currently serves as Deputy National Director for Our Future. Alex worked in Arizona Ready as campaign director in charge of managing a team with over 70 colleagues. So this is what he said when I asked him how he describes what he does. Um, so I think the first and foremost, I describe myself as an organizer and meaning that uh, I organize on behalf of progressive candidates and causes um, that are near and dear to my heart. And I try to, um, what that means is, is uh, you know, organizing people uh, to take collective action on behalf of what, uh, what I believe are, are candidates that we can believe in and, and causes that need, uh, need action taken on the path. Because this episode is about campaigns, I didn't want to assume we all had the same understanding. So I asked Carla to describe what she understood as a campaign. At the core of it is, is to bring unity, um, to bring unity to either a community, to bring unity to, towards like a certain like politician, to bring unity uh, a community to a certain cause. Uh, so I don't know if that's changing um, and or if that's something that's, yeah. Electoral campaigns have been changing. In 2006, Donald Trump ran mostly a digital effort that truly disrupted the way electoral campaigns were run to date. We went from hyper-focusing on field operations during 2008 and 2012, led by Barack Obama's neighborhood team model, an approach to create that unity that Carla mentioned, a sense of belonging that was rooted in neighborhoods. People created teams in the regions where they lived and they had the responsibility of talking to the number of voters they needed in that neighborhood to win for Obama. Trump, on the other hand, targeted people by ideology, not geography, creating communities online, breaking people away onto new platforms that were created or associated to their campaign, rooted mostly in conspiracy and a sense of rebellion against the government itself. Obama's campaign was a swap meet, or a farmer's market, if you will. A bunch of people hanging out near a place where they live sharing space, having dialogue. Trump's campaign, on the other hand, was more like a meetup you found online, rooted in topics and messages for specific audiences. It could be about conspiracy theory or anger against the government, or simply creating spaces to share their frustration and sometimes hate towards others. But if we think about 2020, we might remember that Joe Biden also didn't have a huge operation when he won the primary. There were candidates in the Democratic primary race that were raising more money, that had a larger field team, and that were more innovative online and offline than the new Democratic nominee. So, then what are campaigns for? 
I, lo I love this question uh, because I do think that there is in certain circles, you know, a, a, a reckoning. And I think there, it's long overdue as to how we campaign and, and what that means. So uh, but I, I want to set some context first. You know, Trump and, and Biden, I think, um, are unique. And I've certainly heard in certain circles that you know, people are saying, well, what's the point of having these huge in particular, these huge field campaigns, right? These, these big, sprawling kind of Obama-era uh, organizing programs, um, which, you know, again, Biden and, and Trump didn't have. But I think th those two candidates are, in a way, it's, it's hard to judge from those two um, because both came into the campaign, into their primary campaigns with universal name ID um, and built in, voters knew who these people were. They're known quantities. Um, they also benefited from very large, very um, cacophonous uh, uh, fields of candidate around them, right? Um, you know, 20 some candidates in the Democratic primary this year or last year. Um, Trump, similarly, huge, sprawling. And they benefited from that because you had all these other candidates fighting each other. And these two with universal name ID didn't have to do the work of introducing themselves in the way that, say, you know, someone like a a Julian Castro would have to do or a, or a Kamala Harris. Um, so, you know, it, it's a little it's a little tough to judge solely on those two. Um, here's what I would say, though. Um, you know, organizing to me uh, still matter and real organizing. Now, two things I'll say about that. One is there are campaigns that, that have say they have a great organizing program. And they're really just when you look under the surface, there's not. They're, they're kind of like the user organizers almost as like telemarketers, right? As, as like paid ID machine. And that's not organizing. So I want to separate that. I want to separate that and paid canvassing as well, um, which can be good in certain circumstances, but more often than not is, is, is worse than useless in my mind um, from the actual real work of organizing. Um, and the second thing I'll say is organizing can only do so much. So for people who think that, well, I'll have this, I'm gonna have this huge organizing program and it's gonna lead me to victory. Well, if you're a candidate who is down by, you know, 10, 15 points, all you can knock every door in the world and it's not gonna get you victory, right? Organizing, a good organizing program, as we know, it's two and five percentage in an election, right? So uh, it is very much um, important for those, those narrow victories, those, those Yield margins, as we call them. Um, so I think the, the, the current skepticism kind of comes around from inflated expectations around what an organizing program can or should do. And two, it um, is taking two examples that I think are, are tough to, to translate into the other candidate campaign. As we heard from Alex, the Trump campaign has been running now a large field operation. According to their own reports, their volunteers have been knocking on 1 million doors a week since August. While the Biden campaign is still struggling to get out to the doors less than 30 days away from Election Day. Their calculations are different, maybe. Trump believes that his energy and that of his supporters will persuade people at the door to vote for him. While Democrats believe that putting people's lives at risk by going to their homes and trying to talk to them during the pandemic might not benefit their position as a responsible candidate for president. Only time will tell us which one will work. But if we look closer, in states all around the country, candidates and organizations are actually out in the field. 
taking precautions, of course, using personal protective equipment, and talking to voters at the door. Face-to-face -face voter contact continues to be the most effective way to persuade voters, even during a pandemic. But COVID has made it extremely difficult to do door-to-door -door canvassing. It's hard to recruit organizers who are willing to go out and have one-on-one -on -one conversations. Volunteers are less likely to want to go door-knocking. So I wanted to know more of how Arizona already shifted 100% online early on. How do they think about organizing online versus offline in this new reality? It's funny because when reflecting back, like when the era of COVID came out, you know, when we're, well, I guess when we're entering the era of COVID, a lot of it seemed very familiar to me. Um, and I know Luis, I think we've had a conversation about this. Uh, myself and all the other organizers have had um, a conversation where the whole world was experiencing what like undocumented families like experience like on an everyday. You know, I think outside it's not necessarily like a, a, a virus that, you know, that's coming to get you. Right. But it's, you know, police, it was ice. It was, uh, you know, folks who did it, you know, living with that uncertainty, whether your family was going to come back safe or not. But um, we had a lot of organizers who were worried about that during the campaign, like whose parents or whose family members or cared or loved ones who were working on, on the front lines and understood that this was something that was scary to them. And so organizers living with with that fear, not in, in their personal life, but also I think within like their, their, their work life, right? I think it, it shifted a lot. I think for me, it was also somewhat familiar, not only because of that, but I think also because of the way that I interact. I want to say like millennials or, or younger folks are interacting now uh, with the digital age. I have a lot of friends who I stay connected with um, and we do, you know, not necessarily Zoom calls, but we would do FaceTime calls. And so I think a lot of the things were very familiar to myself. And I think that a lot of folks having are having a hard time because they've never navigated the world through like that different lens of uncertainty and ways to connect with people when you're not with them on a sitting in front of them, right? Like I have a lot of family who are, you know, in Mexico and I, and I connect with them uh, virtually and I connect with folks who I haven't seen in a long time because of, again, status reasons. With that being said, I think it has a lot to do with the mind shift on how we are thinking about organizing it being like in person and now organizing being digital but it's essentially, I think, the same way that you're building a relationship, the same way that you reach out to a friend over a text message might be the same way that you reach out to a potential voter. Carla spoke about her own experience organizing with undocumented communities and how COVID didn't seem too different from the experiences of families who lived in fear of leaving their homes during raids or the way immigrant communities build relationships using virtual tools across countries. This conversation made me think of how resilience and lived experiences can actually help us be better campaigners, and how for years, campaigns have been run by people without the lived experiences that I'm talking about, using cookie-cutter formulas to campaigns, making them so sanitized sometimes and boring that people don't want to engage with them. 
But Carla did something powerful with Arizona already. People kept coming to the effort organically, sharing content, telling us how much they liked what they saw online, and joining our list by the thousands. So how did she do this? I think that for a long time, I've always seen like politics as something that's very, for lack of a better term, I don't want to say uh, boring, but at, at some point for myself, like unaccessible. Um, and unaccessible because it, nothing is, was necessarily, like I, I wasn't being reached out or spoken to by different campaigns. Um, the first campaign that did that was the Obama campaign. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? I didn't really understand what, was, what I was seeing, but I understood that arts and culture and politics and, and people and you know personalities were coming out in the forefront for this man, right? I would see that everyone would do the same thing. Like they use the same color palette. Like they use the same words. They use the same typography. They use the same everything. And for me as a young person coming in and wanting to get excited about things, like it never, it never made me excited. Now I knew that through like the organizing model and the organizing tactics, like people were going to get hit at an angle that, you know, that they needed to be hit. But I knew that there was an opportunity to make this theme be a little bit different, be something that was refreshing, be something that you couldn't, you know, help double like on, you know, on your Instagram page that you couldn't help uh, stop and notice while you were scrolling on, you know, on your Twitter or your Facebook feed. For me, it was an opportunity to be creative, but also tie in a little bit of a different like approach on, on, on seeing politics and seeing organizing. Yeah, like through a different lens and more accessible. While the message of campaigns is all about promoting democracy through voting, some campaigns are actually suppressing the vote of certain communities. Too often, we focus on populations that are already civically engaged. People who vote all the time. The game then becomes how many base voters we can turn out. And if those aren't enough, how many folks who are on the fence and usually vote, we can convince to join us. So at the end, we leave too many voters out of this calculation. And usually, those voters are the ones most impacted by the decisions made in government. This is, this is one of the, the more frustrating things about uh, uh, campaigns uh, that uh, certain campaigns that I've come across, right, is that poor people don't vote, so we're not going to talk to them. We're not going to spend resources on them. We're going to go to the people that we know that are going to vote, and, and, and we're going to focus on them. And, and that extends to other, uh, sometimes to other, you know, uh, uh, communities as well and, and other demographics. So, for instance, um, a lot of times, especially in, in uh, down-ballot races like Senate campaigns and congressional campaigns, um, they don't talk to students. Uh, you know, college students, young people, because again, they're like, well, they don't, they don't vote. We don't have time for that. We don't have the resources for that. To a certain extent, I understand. Uh, but on a, on a broader scope, um, you're leaving a whole uh, swath of, of America on the table um, that are not being talked to, that are disillusioned and alienated from politics. And um, both me and Carla, you know, have touched on this. You know, in, in, in our younger days, we we're both. Uh, felt that, you know, politics was an abstract and no, nobody, there was no one there to, to puncture that, no one there to say, like, uh, to connect the dots, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and, you know, I think there are certain people, in, in, especially in D.C. and others that say, well, you know, your campaign, you got to raise money and then you got to you know, take that money and, and get, get on TV. 
Um, I think that uh, campaigns, what they should be focused on before any before a single dollar is raised is telling a story. Good campaigns understand that and they create stories, uh, a story about why this candidate or this cause um, is important. They create a narrative. Um, it's one of the reasons we as organizers, uh, good organizers, always talk about telling our personal story. What bad campaigns do, and there are more bad campaigns, unfortunately, than good campaigns, is they say, well, you care about health care. I care about health care. Oh, you care about gun, gun violence. I care about gun violence. Look at my resume. And that's supposed to impress somebody. Uh, and it might, right, for your for your activists, right, the, the folks who go to the county Democratic Party office and, and look envelopes and hand out voter guides, that, that maybe that's enough for them. But for a whole swath of America, a whole swath of people, that isn't enough. They don't know enough about these issues to, to say, oh, I, I your your twelve point plan on healthcare reform, you know, they're just not going to read that, right? Because they don't have time, and they don't have. Uh, they've got bigger things to worry about. As I mentioned in my own family's life, right? Just putting food on the table sometimes is enough to take up your, all of your thought for a day, right? The last thing you need to worry about is a white paper that a candidate put out about their 10-step plan to, to, for the environment, right? In the absence of rallies, in-person events, and campaign offices, we had to create community in different ways. And the hierarchical structure of traditional campaigns didn't allow for that during COVID. So I asked Carla what she'd like to talk more about if we had more time. And she actually referred to culture. This is what she told us. I think campaign culture. I think what I've seen from previous campaigns is that like campaigns are run a certain way and they're, you know, they're, you're meant to be working a billion and a half hours, right? And I think that it's unsustainable and I think that because maybe because of COVID, like things are, we have a amazing, I guess, like opportunity to, to restart and to think through the way that we think about campaigning and about sustainability within each of the campaigns and also like the longevity of campaigns. Like I know they come and go, but there's something about like there's no like campaign schools. Like I know that there's like, arena and like folks who are like building capacity for folks to understand, but there's not necessarily like, I don't know if there's like big curriculum around this. So like, I guess maybe those would be my, my two things is like campaign culture and then, you know, longevity of campaigns. Many colleagues in campaigns around the country have had a really tough time with managing campaigns culture this year. At Arizona Ready, we actually struggle with this. And I think it wasn't almost until the end when we realized that the traditional centralized ways of communicating in campaigns wasn't going to work, that we needed a more horizontal structure where organizers could do more activities on their own and that could target specific affinities to attract conversations and build community. We also saw a trend of campaigns unionizing around the country, which is a powerful and hopefully a trend that will remain in politics. But as Carla mentioned, there's no campaign school. Most programs teach campaign managers how to execute specific campaigns or identify win numbers, do digital organizing, but there's very little focus on how to build an inspiring, robust, and rigorous campaign, how to handle uncertainty outside of the campaign, and even thinking about protecting the well-being of staff. There's a lot we can learn from such a messy year. 
So I asked Alex what he thought about culture and what else he'd like to talk more about if we had more time. Um, there's a, a, a campaign, there is a, a certain campaign culture that has been transmitted um, from earlier times where, yes, you're supposed to work 24-7, sleeping is, is a sign of weakness, right? Um, you know, uh, you're supposed to curse and drink and, and it's supposed to be, a, uh, you know, it's almost like this, this boys club type of, of mentality that certain, uh, it still permeates in some, some areas of the campaign world. That just needs to die. That needs to go away. The the other thing I, I think would love to, to continue to explore is um, you know what it means to, to run a good campaign and in particular organizing. Again, this is this is a discussion that I think is going to continue. Um, you know, certainly through the rest of this year and, and next um, as the what what constitutes organizing in the era of COVID, what constitutes organizing in the era of um, as you mentioned of the Donald Trump of the world and, and the Joe Biden campaigns of the world. Um, you're going to, I think you're going to have people continuing to say like, well, this, this doesn't work or, you know, we need to change this. Um, and I think, you know, it's up to folks who believe in organizing to keep the flame alive and say, no, yeah, there, there are things that, that don't work. And that we, uh, and, and the reason they don't work is you're not doing it right. Right. Um, and here's, here's what good organizing looks like. Here's what we're organizing can do. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, beyond the, the, the electoral victories or, or the issue campaign victories, um, one of the greatest lasting legacies of a good organizing program is communities that are stronger um, and that can last beyond the organizer himself or herself, right? I think it's more important than ever in this day, in this era of fractured politics and, um, and, and where community is becoming broken down, right? Fewer people are joining clubs. Fewer people are going to church. Fewer people are going to, uh, you know, collective, doing collective things together. Um, and especially now with COVID, that's even more so. It's kind of turbocharged that trend. Um, creating community is more important than ever. And we as progressives should fight for that and, and say we have to not only do we need to continue to organize, we need to double down and organize. This message that Alex left us with is a powerful takeaway. While in the grand scheme of things, people are becoming more disillusioned with politics and our new digital realities are making us more isolated, this year we actually saw a new generation of young people take on the streets to fight against police brutality and racism. And that really energized me. This is what I sometimes call lightning moments. Times when the environment is charged with energy, and we see these powerful sightings of lightning, loud moments that rumble the streets, burning things down, unpredictable, yet powerful. It is when this lightning is harvested and managed, when we build sustained power, when with that same electricity, we build a grid, one that communities can turn on and turn off and demand what they desire, to live self-determined lives. Collective action will continue to evolve and spread its force, regardless of the election results. It will be critical for all of us to build networks of power, that as organizers, we continue identifying new leaders that work in their communities to demand and obtain what they want for their lives. We will have to invest in the building of independent political infrastructure so that no party thinks of us as a kept electorate, one that they can count on, but we can count on them. As the country continues to change demographically, campaign leadership will also have to reflect the country, the lived experiences of our communities, 
and decolonize some of the illness that our campaigns have had from their inception. The sexism, the thought that campaigns need to be led by people with a formal education, that charisma can be confused with talent, and that what drives us is not our liberation, but our careers. We can and will change these things because it's already happening. This season, we heard from some of those individuals doing just that. Mi gente organizing people online all across the country, Edlock supporting black and brown leaders, Nuestra Voz connecting communities with culture in old and new places, organizations fighting against dirty money in politics, and unions rooted in racial justice. These are the institutions and the leaders of the present, and they will be our future. One of the efforts I'd like to share with you is something I'm really proud of. That's our sister organization, the nonprofit Instituto. Based in Phoenix, Instituto is an organization that works to build power with low income and communities of color by accelerating the work of existing organizations, training, coaching, and creating communities of practice with campaigners and activists. You can learn more about our work at instituto.io. Instituto.io. And if the conversation sparked your interest and you want to learn more about campaigns, we recommend you our friends over at Arena, who train campaigners and candidates all across the country. Learn more at arena.vote. Well, this is the last episode of this season. We encourage you to listen to the other episodes if you haven't had a chance to do so. And if you have, please share and review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so that you can be the first one to hear about our new season. And in the meantime, Find jobs, tools, and great information at Iconico.io. Like Iconic with an O.io. A huge thanks to Grecia Beltran for helping produce this episode and this season, to Francisco Flores for mixing all the sounds so you can have a great experience, to Monica Nowakowski and Jacob Acuna for the promotion, to Carla Chavarria for the graphics, and to you for supporting us and helping us close this season with so many listeners. Please don't forget to vote, get others to do the same. And more importantly, hold whoever wins accountable so that we can all be free. The music is by Barrio Lindo and the writing and editing is done by me, Luis Avila. The best for the rest of the year. Stay healthy and remember that you are powerful, more so when you are with others. So I'm really riding that high, Luis, into the weekend of like, I am in fact stronger than Alex Steele, at least in this moment. So and that's a really good name, by the way, to be very strong. So just for you to say like, I'm stronger than Alex Steele, it's even like that could be a Netflix series. Yeah. I'm into the idea. Let's let's talk about this in the check-in, please. I like it too. I like it too. The views and opinions expressed by the guests and hosts of Iconico Exchange are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Iconico or the Fuerte Network.